You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. You shouldn't toot your own horn. That familiar idiomatic expression means you shouldn't boast about yourself and your achievements. I disagree, but that's a whole other story. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I have found that one of the most powerful and enjoyable ways to grow, expand, and enrich our lives is to read great books. And our sponsor, Audible, has made that easy and fun for you by offering you an audiobook of your choice absolutely free that you can download at their website www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. You get to choose the book that you want from more than 180,000 titles and you get access for a month to all of Audible services absolutely free. When you get something of value from this podcast, go to iTunes, look for the title, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, leave a brief review and a rating for the show, a great way to pay this forward and to create more visibility and share this with more people. Keep your comments coming about what you're enjoying And also, what you'd like to see in the show going forward. Send your comments to loseclub at gmail.com. That's L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. Today's guest is not a boastful man, but he toots a mean horn. He's an internationally acclaimed saxophonist, flutist, clarinetist, composer, and jazz educator. In his long career, he's been a soloist with famous bands that include leaders like Louis Belson, Woody Herman, and Buddy Rich. He has appeared on every major network TV show, including The Ed Sullivan Show and Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. He's worked with Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Dizzy Gillespie, Ella Fitzgerald, Chick Corea, Woody Shaw, and McCoy Tyner. He's performed, recorded, and toured the world with Elvin Jones' Time Machine since 1975. Elvin Jones was the drummer in the legendary John Coltrane Quartet. Our guest's own playing is in the style of John Coltrane, a true jazz giant. His own album, Deep in a Dream, won the 2000 Juno Award for Best Mainstream Jazz Album. This is what Elvin Jones says about Pat. Pat has tremendous musical ability beyond technical facility. He has great power of concentration to detail and is totally committed with body and soul. 
Pat LaBarbera's life is music and what sweet music it is. Pat, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thanks, Louis. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Oh, man, it's an honor. It really, really is. Pat, let's start with where you were born. Yes, I was born in uh, Mount Morris, New York, which is a little town, about 4,000 people at the time I was born, about 36 miles south of Rochester, New York, in the Finger Lakes area of New York State. Okay. 1944, April 7, 1944. Okay. You're a war baby. Yes, when I was born, FDR was president and Hitler was still in power. So I mean, it's back that far, but wow. it changed right quite rapid. Wow, quite, changed quite rapidly in June. But yes, <laughs> so you come from a musical family. Now, was there one person who influenced you the most when you were a kid? Well, when I was a kid, it would definitely have to be my father because he was the main influence in getting all of us started in music. My father was. Um, he was a musician, but he re worked for the state of New York as an engineer. He started on the railroad as a young boy working as a water boy, worked himself up to a fireman when they used to have the steam locomotives, and then later took the engineer's exam, became what they called a stationary engineer for a hospital, and ran all the boilers at the in the town where we lived. There was a hospital there, and he ran all the boilers and did all the maintenance for that and was, and was there. And so he, But he also had bands all through his life. And he taught lessons. He had we had every instrument in the house, and we had. I used to see as a young boy all kinds of young people coming through, taking private lessons. He would give them lessons in the basement. So he was the, probably the the most influential person on my musical life right from the beginning. And what, what was his main instrument? Uh, I would have to say probably clarinet and piano. He he played uh, he played everything. You know, he played brass instruments. And he played uh, he played baritone horn. He played uh, some trumpet, but mostly piano, accordion, and uh, woodwinds, saxophone, and clarinet. So, is it safe to say that you always wanted to be a musician? No, I actually didn't. You know, in an Italian household, as you probably know, you know, you do <laughs> you do what you're told. And so, I remember coming home from church one day by myself, my two wee brothers, and he had all these instruments kind of sitting on the couch and said, "Everybody pick something, and we're going to learn how to play." And so we just started from there. Uh, I used to see kids taking lessons, so I kind I kind of was enthralled with it, wanted to do it. So I picked the clarinet. I think my brother John picked a clarinet, or no, he picked a trumpet. My brother Joe played clarinet, but then he, my father put him on drums. We all studied piano. But I didn't always want, you know, we just did it as a thing because you had to as a kid. And then later on, as I got closer to going to um, high school, I didn't want to do it at all. I was going to quit as soon as I went to high school. What did you want to do instead? <clears throat> I didn't want to play, it really wasn't, into music toward the uh, my later years when I was about 17, 18. No, sorry, I'd have to say 16, 17. And then I went to high school, and of course, I got I kind of got roped into the band because one of my next-door neighbors basically came up to one of my classrooms and dragged me down. He said, you're going to be in the band, and that's it. So they, I reluctantly went down. And then that music teacher, my music teacher in high school, his name was Frank Matina. He's the one that got me into jazz, per se, what I consider jazz. Now, although my father had many swing bands and Ellington and that, it was this music teacher who kind of got me nudged into the real jazz direction that I pursued. Mm, okay. 
So who yeah, so we played, my, my father, we had a family band, so we played all through my young years from 1954, I was working 1954 with my father, played all the way through 50, all the way through the 50s up until around 58, 59, and then I uh, kind of stopped working with my father's band. We had a family band and we worked everywhere, weddings, parties, uh, everything. So you were starting, you were playing professionally when you were 10 years old. Oh, 1954. I was I was ten. I was working. I started playing the sax. I started playing in '52 the instrument, and I was working by 1954. And at that I've time, got, you, you so you were playing sax at that time. Uh, clarinet and sax, but mostly uh, clarinet, and then saxophone uh, a, a year or so later. So as you got involved more and more, who became your greatest musical influence outside of your family members? Well, I mean, uh, once I got into the jazz um, idiom, and that was in high school, once my music teacher started bringing jazz records to school, and he would let us cut classes, go into the band room, and we'd be listening to these recordings, and he'd have records of Charlie Parker and Stan Getz and Lester Young, and so we would listen to these, I would, would. there's a few other guys who did that, my brothers also, that's what kind of gave us the spark. That was the, those were the early players that we listened to. Lester Young was a huge influence on me, as was Stan Getz, and later on John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, Miles Davis. But he had all of these recordings that he had gotten when he was in college. My music teacher, of course, was much older, so he influenced us and, and kind of pointed us in the direction of what to listen to. And then our high school library had Downbeat Magazine, which was really uncommon for a small town of 4,000 people in, a, in basically a, a farming kind of community to have Downbeat Magazine. But we would get this magazine and re read all the articles and find out about all the great players who were working in New York. And then when we went to Rochester, we would buy their records. Mm. Do you remember what you felt the first time you heard Coltrane? Yes, I can remember. Well, I... I was, uh, the first Coltrane record that I really heard was an album with, with Coltrane and Paul Quinichet, and then a Miles Davis record where he played um, on Green Dolphin Street. Those two records were really important to me, and uh, it was really earth-shaking. Uh, it, was, it was frantic, because we had been listening to people like Lester Young, who were very conservative in their choice of notes, and not a lot of rapid and exotic sounds and it was really like it kind of shook us as young guys we liked it because it was radical you know it kind of went against the norm of the time but it was really uh we didn't know what to do to comprehend like how how is he doing this what is he doing we kept listening and listening to try to understand what, what he was doing with the music and of course you're you're talking 1960 1960 61 but most of the recordings i were listening to were done in 58 or 59 because we weren't always getting the most current recordings. You know, I love what you're telling me. I mean, uh, you made a comment that part of what attracted you was that it was against the grain. It wasn't, it was against the norm. And isn't jazz in a way, I mean, a kind of outsider's music? Um, it, it is. It, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, at one point it was, when it, when people danced to the music, you know, through the big band era, uh, the jazz players basically, you know, were, were playing for dancing most of the times until, you know, Benny Goodman with those concerts where people started listening more than dancing. But it was more or less a music for dance. And then later on, it got into a music for listening. And, of course, you're going to lose your audience because not every, you know, person is 
I would say skilled enough, but basically it just doesn't reach them in the same way. Some people really listen to music for what's going on harmonically, and there's a message and a meaning behind it. Other people just listen with their feet. They want to be moved. They want to shake their butts, and that's fine, too. And there's always a, an, a, an area of jazz that is there for those kinds of people. I, I think about the organ trios in the in the 50s and 60s that were around at that time that, that really... Uh, they were still jazz bands, but they had that, you know, you know, kind of dance element to them that could, that could always be, uh, uh, you know, danced to and listened to at the same time. You know, it's interesting. You said that uh, the contrast to the dance music was the music to be listened to, but for the musicians, wasn't it very much for themselves as a form of intense personal expression? Yeah, that that is true. That's kind of what the main thing is, because you could kind of reach both audiences. The musicians were basically trying to do it to really expand the music and where it would, see where it would go, where it would take them. There's so many developments that happened during that, uh, from the end of the big band era into the bop era, where the music then just totally became for listening, and music lost a lot of listeners during that time because it it became. You know, it's, 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 it is became a music for our musicians, you know, primarily, but they were really thinking, I don't think a lot of them were even thinking about, uh, uh, you know, stardom, or they were just really trying to move the music forward, the ones that I listened to anyway. Well, yeah, certainly that applies to the Coltrane's and the Thelonious yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Monk. I mean, I'm not a musician. Monk, Monk, yeah. I'm not a musician, but I remember as as a teenager hearing their music and identifying with it emotionally so strongly, it became the music that I was most excited about. And I had the benefit yeah. of living in New York and being able to see those guys live. So that was just amazing. Yeah, if you're talking about, I don't know, for you, I don't know when it was, early 50s maybe? or No, no, it was, uh, when, when, you and I are both uh, 1944, my friend. Yes, yeah, so we're both 74. So it would have been... Late fifties, early sixties, that you were kind of became aware of it. So you'd see Coltrane, you'd see Monk, Miles would have been in there, Cannibal, Adderley, probably. Yeah, yeah, know? absolutely. You saw them all, Charlie Mingus, um, and it was just amazing yeah. in the in the in the village during those days, you know. And uh, it was for me transformative. I guess the best way to express it is to say that whenever I heard jazz, I felt so emotionally connected to it. And I think that part of it was the wildness of it and the and the turmoil that I heard because that's the way I was feeling at that point in my life. And I completely identified. Pat, were there any major obstacles you had to overcome to achieve your success? Well, uh, well, major obstacles. <laughs> um Probably, uh, yeah, I really can't think. I mean, first of all, like learning the idiom. <laughs> in a small town, there was not really a lot of uh, jazz, uh, you know, recordings. I had a couple of friends. We had some who helped me, but there were there were not a lot of influences around the local scene. I had to go to Rochester to kind of be uh, influenced by people who played there, the Mangione brothers and, and people of that ilk who were working in Rochester. It was basically trying to find 
what everybody was doing at the time. You're talking on 1960-61, although it was a, a hotbed in New York City, it wasn't that way in the town I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's interesting that despite all of that, you uh, found yourself uh, moving gradually into the big leagues. Now, w- were there times when you thought to yourself, I'm never going to make the grade. I just don't have what it takes. Well, yeah, I see. I, when I first uh, went to, uh, after I graduated from high school, I went to a state teacher's college in New York State, Potsdam State Teacher's College. And I was the first saxophonist admitted into the New York State school system. Up until that time, you always had to be a clarinet player, and then you would play saxophone in some of the woodwind or wind ensembles and other chamber orchestras as a double. But I was admitted as a saxophone player. But when I went to Potsdam, my uh, my teacher, who was a clarinet teacher, didn't like the fact that I was a saxophone player. And he basically didn't like me at all. He even told me, how did you ever get into this school? It was very discouraging, and I left after about... Uh, one, after one semester, and I went back and worked in a factory, and I basically decided I was, you know, going to j- just basically go back home and work, and uh, got really discouraged about playing. And then I, I fell in love with the music again. I worked through that summer to earn money to buy a Selmer saxophone, and um, I went to California that summer and came back and realized I want to go to Berkeley School of Music in '63. So I, I came back from California in '63 and worked all through. 64 in the factory I worked in construction and different gigs just to earn enough money to go to the uh, to go to Berkeley. You know what it's interesting to me do you remember if there were some pivotal moments that uh, that that reignited the the spark in you because here you were you were working in a factory and but something had to impel you to say you know what I really love the music I'm going to go to California. Do you remember what that was? Yeah, well, the California trip was really, uh, there were four trumpet players who were going to go to California. I was really influenced on quite a bit by the West Coast jazz musicians, Shelley Mann, Jerry Mulligan at that time, Chet Baker, all of those guys on that West Coast scene. And these four trumpet players were driving out to California, but one of them couldn't go. He he, he kind of uh, begged off the tour, and they said, there's a slot open, you want to go? I said, sure. So I, I basically bought onto this trip, and we went to California for a month. And I got to go to Shelley's band hall and see Paul Horn live, who was another one of my big influences. And I got to see all these West Coast guys. And then I realized after hearing them that I had to go back to school. I wasn't good enough to kind of go and get out there and start playing. I had to go to, to Berkeley. And that's when I decided to go to Berkeley. And I came back that it was August of 63, came back and worked all through that winter to try to earn enough money to go to, to Berkeley. Berkeley at that time was pretty expensive. When you think about now it's like $50,000 a, sem- a semester or a year. And then back then it was a thousand dollars a year, $500 a semester. I didn't quite have the money, but my father, my father had to go to the mob to get the money. The bank wouldn't lend it to him. So he went to some loan sharks that he knew and they gave him the money for the, for I could go to Berkeley you know, with what I had earned. Wow. That's a great story, man. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a different era, but you know, the bank would not give my dad even a five, you know, $300, $400 loan back then, and he was working a steady job. But that was a lot of money when you think about it. When I, I remember when I was in college in 1962 at the Potsdam, and I went down to the 
bulletin board, and I looked at the bulletin board for the job postings for a music teacher, you know, full music teacher salary that year was between $5,000 and $7,000 a year. It was a full, full, I thought, if I could ever earn $5,000 a year, I'd be set for life. You're talking 1962. That was what a music teacher was working, wow. was, was making. Wow. That's incredible, man. Now, yeah, so. you was there a racial divide in jazz when you were starting your career? When I started, I there wasn't uh, because I when I lived in in the Rochester area, I belonged to a black social club at the time called the Pithod uh, Hall. It was a, a black social club in Rochester where you had to have a membership. And one of our one of my good friends who owned a jewelry store in Mount Morris was a drummer, and he got us into it. He would he basically would drive us into the city because we couldn't drive at the time. We're talking about we're 16, 17, and 18. But this was a club that used to bring in all the organ trios, bring in you know guys like uh, Dexter Gordon. These guys would come through and play in this club. And if you were a member, you could go in and see. And it was it was a mixed audience. Soon after that, a few years after that, when the race riots were happening all through the states, that club burned down. And then the the kind of the, the racial divide happened. But up until that time when I was in high school, you didn't really notice it as much. Uh, uh, it just it, everybody kind of got along in the clubs. But all of a sudden, the things changed back then. I'm talking about just the, the social aspect of it. Working aspect, I didn't uh, come across any of that until later years when I started working with bands. Okay. Right. So when you started working with bands, how did you start to gain your respect, the respect of so many giants of jazz? Because I'm sure you had to prove yourself to them. Yeah, well, first of all, you realize that right out of Berkeley, after I left Berkeley in 1964, I joined right from the school. Matter of fact, one of my teachers at Berkeley got me the job on Buddy Rich's band. I went right on the road with Buddy Rich. So it was from school into the, into the big time, as they called it back then. I mean, there you were. You were playing. So you had to perform. And if you didn't, you would not be in the, in the band. And I got on that band, and I, I basically stayed there for almost seven years. And I went through the ranks. I started as a fourth tenor player, went, moved up to lead tenor, and ended up, you know, like booking the, the musicians and, and firing. I used to have to fire a lot for Buddy too. <laughs> but uh, it, you basically gain the respect by performance. I mean, you know, it's the same thing. People know what you can do. You go to sessions, you prove yourself in the jam sessions, and then people see how you play, how, hear how you play. When I was hiring for Buddy Rich's band, I always hired through the guys I knew in school because in Berkeley because I knew how they could play in a situation. I knew what they could do, and I knew they were reliable, so I would hire guys that I knew. So it's usually a word-of-mouth thing. It's not like, uh, I guess, in your profession where you have to, you get called and you have to audition. There were really no auditions in Buddy's band. You just got the job, you came on. If you couldn't play within two or three nights, you were gone. So the audition was basically a test of fire. <laughs> mm. did, did you ever actually meet and maybe even play with Coltrane? No, I never met him. I, I, I mean, I used to see him, but I was always afraid to... Uh, to uh, to talk to him first of all because he would leave the bandstand and go directly into some kind of a room either off the off 
the bandstand or off the bar somewhere and just start practicing. So he was always hard to approach in a club. He never really socialized out in the audience. The other guys did. I remember meeting McCoy Tyner and uh, Jimmy Garrison and Elvin. Uh, they would they would uh, talk, but Train always isolated himself immediately after the set and went right into the to the practice room and kept practicing. I want to share something with you, man. I was in the half note in New York City mm -hmm. one night with my dad, listening mm -hmm. to Coltrane, and I actually got to go up to him and talk to him. <laughs> to, wow! To John Coltrane, yeah, and, and I remember saying to him, he started telling me that he had left music for five years. And I looked at him and said, I said, what brought you back? And he said, I didn't like working. I like working. That's yeah. it, man. Yeah, we, yeah. I used to go watch him practice in clubs in the daytime. I had a friend who was, a, and when I was in Berkeley at the jazz workshop, I had a friend who worked there as a waiter. And he used to let us go in in the daytime when Train would be in the band room practicing. And it was over by the bathroom, so we we'd pretend we're going to the bathroom and past the practice room. And he had the door open. We'd watch him in there putting reeds on. We'd just look in quickly, but we never stopped. I was always apprehensive, and also I didn't want to be disillusioned because sometimes you meet so many of these guys who are your heroes, and all of a sudden they turn out to be a real dragon. I did not want to have that feeling with Coltrane, so I just stayed away from him. Mm. <laughs> and I now find out late. In later years, that he was very approachable and very nice and always encouraging. Oh. But back then, <laughs> that's great. Why well, I had had some bad run-ins with guys. You know, through the years, you have run-ins with people who you think you know you hear them on recordings and they were you know you love their music and then all of a sudden they you meet them in person. And you pro I'm sure that in your profession you see that too. They could be real drags, and I said. I don't want to go through that. You know, I, I've been fortunate, actually, uh, that there are jerks in the acting business. But I must say sure. that I've worked with, I'd say, 97 to 98 percent of the stars I've worked with have been lovely people. Really, uh, I have nothing negative to say about them. Why did you? Oh, that's great. Yeah, it is. It is. Why did mm -hmm. you? Why did you come to Canada? Well, when I left Buddy Rich's band, I was living in Rochester, New York, and there really wasn't a scene there. I, uh, my wife was Canadian, and uh, I was an American citizen, and my family lived in Mount Morris, New York, and my wife's family lived in Lindsay, Ontario, which is, you know, like about 75, 80 miles uh, northeast of, of Toronto. So I thought we had a baby on the way. I thought, well, this I, I would be a great city to move to. Plus, I knew all the players here because I had encountered them on the road <clears throat> years before when I was with Buddy's band. They were all living in Vancouver. All the guys that I know now, Don Thompson, Terry Clark, Bernie Sinensky, Dave McMurdo, Dave Field, Gary Winston, they were all living out in Vancouver. And so I used to session with them out in Vancouver when I worked Izzy's Supper Club out there. So when they, they moved... From 1968-69, everybody had moved to Toronto because there was a big, thriving uh, studio scene, and there was a lot of shows, like Hair brought a lot of musicians here. And so those those the productions with musicians forced everybody out west where their work was, you know, was not available. They all moved to Toronto. So when I would come through to Toronto to work to Royal York, I would see all these guys and hang and play with them. I thought, well, this would be a great city. I didn't want to live in New York. I had kind of... I lived in off on the road for seven years there, and I lived in L.A. for a while and didn't like that that much. So I 
chose uh, Toronto. It would be close to both sets of parents, and uh, the grandchildren can be close to their grandparents. That was one of the main reasons. That makes total sense. Now, yeah. the Canadian entertainment world lacks a star system. Certainly in the acting world, we feel that. How have you felt that in the jazz world? Yeah, I, I don't see. I mean, we all know the musicians know who the, who the stars are. I mean, we have, of course, the ones that made it, you know, really big, like Gil Evans and Maynard Ferguson, or maybe Diana Krall or Oscar Peterson. People who have those kinds of names, but those are the real superstars. And then there's there's no level kind of below that. One of the main reasons probably is that we're we're lacking one thing that they have. Uh, what they used to have in the States was a touring festivals situation. We have that now with some jazz festivals, but there's really no club scene where you can kind of tour the way it used to be. You know, used to bands from New York used to start in New York or go up to Albany, hit Syracuse, hit Rochester, hit Buffalo, hit Detroit, hit Chicago, hit St. Louis, go to L.A., and they'd, they'd tour. And then in the summer, all these jazz festivals... And through empresarios, you know, like Norman Granz and George Ween, they had summer places to play and you know, bring a focus to the music. We have the jazz festivals in Canada, but what we lack in Canada is agents. There are really no, you know, an agent that can book a band from one city all the way across. It's all done individually, or the musicians have to do it themselves. That's one of the reasons I usually don't work Canadian jazz festivals because I, the system is so it's it's set up so the musician has to do all the work. The festivals will give you the job, but then you have to apply to the Canada Council, get a grant, book your own hotels, book your own uh, airfare, figure out the payroll. We're in the states. They used they have agencies that do this. I, I don't know. I know in the acting business you have agents that that represent you, but in the jazz business there really isn't that element. But see, Pat, even in the acting world with agents, we still don't have a star system. It's part of the culture, no. and so yeah, now yeah. you were talking about. You said you know you know you mentioned the names that you said. Well, they you know uh, you you kind of put them in a category above, but actually. When I started hearing you and a lot of your colleagues play, mm-hmm. having come from New York and I was exposed to Coltrane and to Davis and to the, the absolute giants, and I'm going, wait a minute. These guys I'm hearing here are world class. They, they, they don't lack anything. And yet they're relatively unknown. Yeah. You, you know, I, I don't know if I share, you know this, but the way you and I met, I was driving my car on, uh, I remember it was on an afternoon and, uh, listening to Jazz FM and they were playing, uh, the Travelers, Travelers song, Al Henderson's group. And you were, oh, on, yeah. you yeah. were on saxophone. Yeah. I was so captivated that I pulled my car over until the song was over. I listened and I said, Oh my God, this is great jazz. And then they announced, yeah, and they're playing tonight at the Montreal Bistro. I said, really? That's it. I came home. I spoke to my friends upstairs. I said, we're going to the Montreal Bistro. And we came and that's when I first met you. Well, yeah, that was a while back, wasn't it, Lewis? Yeah. Well, yeah, the Montreal. No kidding. It's gone. Yeah. It's gone a long time. But yeah. the, the point I'm making is that. You, Al Henderson, all these guys, 
you guys are world class, man. I mean, I've heard you play Coltrane. I came when you did the oh, yeah. when you did the tribute, you know, to the um, yeah to uh, uh, a love supreme. And I, I I tell people this when I close my eyes and you're playing that music, you're channeling Coltrane. Uh, well, I try to when I do that. It's pretty hard not to with that piece of music. You know, I try to kind of, I mean, he was an influence, so I try to do that. Uh, you know, one of the other reasons I think the Canadians, are, there's a lack of a star system, is they, they don't get to perform on stages in the States and in Europe, like festivals in Europe. I mean, there are a lot of Canadian bands that tour Europe, and some of them manage to get into the States and play, but you know they're not written about and uh, you know the musicians know that all about all of these people but the general public doesn't unless they really get a publicity thing going and some if somebody really starts writing them writing about them then you can rise to a stature of, of, of say it's not like say diana crawl or people of that ilk but um it's just they're not being written about. And we know here in Toronto the, the level of player that we have. I mean, I've played all over the world with some of the greatest players. And I, you know, would put those players up against any Canadian player. And not to say there should be a contest, but they certainly can hold their own in any kind of uh, situation. No, I totally agree. I'm always a big, I'm a big proponent of Canadian jazz. I always felt, I felt that a lot of the Canadian jazz musicians take a second seat sometimes in the festivals you know, they're always booking the big acts, the pop acts or the American acts, and then the Canadian acts get, you know, a little bit of uh, crumbs here and there. But it's changing maybe a little bit through some of the new uh, representation at the jazz festivals. Have you ever been tempted, Pat, to move back to the U.S.? Uh, not really. I mean, people always ask me that. I just love it here. I go back all the time. I go back to... Uh, I was just down on the weekend playing with Don Menza, a saxophone player that I, you know, when I was on Buddy Rich's band, we did the, I did a jazz festival down there. I'm going down next month for, for a family reunion in, um, in my hometown of Mount Morris. And then, um, do I go back down again? I can't remember if I'm down there again. I don't think so this year. No. Uh, I visit my uncle who's down there. Yeah, I mean, that, that's all personal stuff. But I mean, in terms of uh, career stuff, it doesn't motivate you at all. No, I don't think so. I don't think I would. Uh, I still love it here. You know, things may change. Who knows? You never know. But I, so far, I, I just love living here. And it's easy. It's a major city where I can fly out of. I go from here to New York. I go from here to Europe. And from here to Japan, I'm always forward to L.A. If I want to go to L.A., it's a quick, it's an easy uh, airline connection. And, and uh, yeah, I agree. Listen, you're talking yeah. to a New Yorker who lives in Toronto, and yeah. I absolutely love it here, you know. Yeah. Now, yeah. can you name a few of the Toronto-based jazz musicians who really inspire you today? Well, I'd have to say, oh, there's so many of them. Don Thompson was uh, a great friend and a great influence on me. There's there's so many uh, you know young musicians out there. I hate the slight Lauren Losky, Kirk McDonald, of course, Alex Dean, uh, you know my partner in uh, Al Henderson's band. Uh, these young saxophone players are really uh, inspiring to, to hear them. I don't get much chance to go out all the time to hear them play, but I'm really uh, you know I'd really love to listen to them when I can. Um, there are others too. There are there are players who have been around for years who I still uh, admire in this town. I wish that, you know, like Ed Bickard, who I thought was a you know a great player and a fantastic player who doesn't play anymore. But there's so many of these great 
Canadian musicians that are around, and they're performing all the time. It's like you say, there's just not a lot of focus on them. Well, most of them are uh, supporting themselves by teaching. Like, I mean, you, you're, you're a respected teacher. What, what do you love most about teaching music? Uh, I like it because I learn from the students. For me to have all these young people out there, you know, beating the bushes, finding out what's going on and what's current, and then they come back to me. I we have a lesson, and they'll say, "Have you heard this?" or "Have you ever checked this out?" I can't listen to everything. I can't be out there constantly finding out what's going on. But I, it's like you have these tentacles that are out there searching and giving you all the latest input on what's going on and what's current in the music scene. I love that. But I like to really open up their ears to things that have gone before them so that they can use those elements and move the music forward in their own way. That's beautiful. Give a plug for your school. You, you, where do you teach? Yes. Well, I've been at, I've been at Humber College now. It's been a long time. I started teaching at Humber College 1975 part time. So I've been with Humber College, what, 43 years off and on, but I've only been part-time since 1989, So, uh, uh, and I'm getting close to the end. I'm just, it's about time for me to kind of retire it and uh, probably do more playing and more traveling. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Are, are today's young jazz students different from when you were a student, and if so, how so? Well, Lewis, I think one of the main things is their technical facility. I am just amazed. I wish I had half the chops that some of these young guys had. We just finished three weeks of a summer program here at, and taking some of Canada's best players in at Humber College. Uh, we, we did that with Kirk McDonald and Kathy Mitro, who runs that program, and, and Lauren Lofsky, Alex Dean. They were all involved in it. And Andre White came down from Montreal. And it was just fantastic. And these players have such technical facility. They already have great sounds, and they, the, the, the instrument is not a problem. The only problem that would, you would see probably nowadays at this young age would be repertoire. They, they don't do what we did in the past where you learned a lot of the old standard songs or standard tunes or tunes of that of the day. They have a different way of playing now. And it's a whole different, uh, uh, you know, d- different approach to it. But they certainly have tremendous technical facility, and they develop so fast. I don't understand. Like, we had all these blocks in our way. Well, of course, we didn't have the information that, that they have now. Everything's available. I mean, if I needed to look up something in the 60s, you know what that was like. Huh? You'd have to go yeah. to a library or or pick, you wait for the latest magazine to come out and then go to a record store, try to find something in a bin somewhere. You know, now they can just pick up the phone and there it is. Yeah, absolutely. And then listen to it on, on YouTube and that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I I do it myself. If I need a tune quickly, and I if I don't have it on my phone, most of the stuff I do have on my phone. But if I don't, I quick I'm into YouTube and find if I can find a uh, you know some kind of a recording. Pat, of the jazz greats uh, all over the world right now who are living, are there a couple that you really look up to? Well, I've always, I mean, Wayne Shorter, of course. I mean, he was always a, a big influence on me. Uh, Herbie Hancock. I mean, those guys, there's just so many of them. And so a lot of them I got to play with. Uh, but um, I would have loved to have played with some of them in a small group setting. I got to play with Herbie Hancock in an orchestral setting, but not in a uh, not in a small group setting. Um, well, just, there's just so many of them out there. Uh, well, I mean, I'm, Wayne Shorter is one of my big, big heroes. Hmm. Yeah, he's a he's a marvelous saxophonist. Now, are there 
uh, musical challenges that you still want to master things in, in, in your own playing? Yeah, I'm still, uh, you know, I'm still working with the horn, uh, you know, trying to uh, work out technical problems. I'm still working by learning songs and repertoire. Uh, mostly now it's, it's being able to try to find time to sit down and write. Uh, do more writing and possibly more recording. I mean, I'll be recording in the fall again, but uh, just uh, like sitting down at the piano. And that's why I'm hoping that when I do retire, I'll have more time to kind of put stuff together and kind of work on them. I do practice all the time and I have, you know, a lot of things that I still need to work out. How many hours a week would you say you practice? Uh, of course, now it's a little bit different because it's kind of the summer. So, I mean, I do have a lot of free time to do it. It's usually two hours a day, a couple hours a day. That's about it. Um, in my, when I was younger, I practiced more, you know, five, six, or seven hours a day. But now I just do two, two hours. And sometimes I don't have time to do that because I have other obligations family wise. I just do maintenance and I'll do half an hour or 20 minutes of sound and, and, uh, and then the, the other thing, I think the most beneficial thing is trying to get together with guys and play. You know, you can practice on your own all you want or play along with the recordings, but, but it's, it's really important to get out there and perform and play. Do you have a Because it's the interaction, you know, it's the interaction with the other musicians is what, what you really, that's the, some, that's the one thing you can't practice in a practice room. No, especially. Play especially jazz, yeah. because it's about improvisation and, and playing off of what the other person gives you. Sure, it's like the acting. You learn your dialogue. You can. You got your script, and you. But you have to be there to to react to the actor. You yeah, know exactly. Exactly. Do you have a studio in your home? Uh, yes, not a recording studio. I have a, a, a. I have a whole huge, big room downstairs with all my music set up, my piano, and my saxophones, and all my recordings. Yes, I do have it, but not a recording studio. No. And it, I guess it's soundproofed. Yeah. Yeah, it's soundproof to a point, and, uh, you know, I live in a house, so I can make noise at 3 o'clock in the morning. It's a carpeted room that I have down in the basement. Uh, it was originally a rec room, so it has a fireplace. It was one of those old 1950s rec rooms so it, that was turned into kind of a, a half of it's an office, half of it's uh, a fireplace and sitting area with a couch, the other half, and then have a quarter of it set up for the, for practicing and playing. Mm-hmm. Talk about your latest upcoming CD. Uh, well, we just finished a CD called Distant Bells. With uh, This is a Japanese company where I every year I would go to Japan in December with my brother Joe and Don Thompson from Toronto and uh, sometimes Neil Swainson. We'd go to Japan and record and tour with a, for a Japanese promoter and uh, producer and now we the producer's been coming here recording us so we just did one last year with my brother joe and don thompson and neil called distant bells which was a tribute to bill evans and now the one in the fall we're doing in november uh, the producer will come from japan we're doing a tribute to it's a thing to uh, basically a retrospective uh, on the music of billy holiday so we're recording a lot of billy holiday's tunes with a quartet wow and without without vocals, right? Without vocal, yeah. Uh, we're, we're do, we're, they don't want to hear me sing, I guess. They, but uh, we're doing all her tunes. Uh, a lot of the stuff that was associated with Billy and Lester Young. I mean, I know Good Morning Heartache is in there. I, I can't remember all the tunes we picked. We're starting to pick the repertoire now, so we're looking at uh, the song selection at this point. What about Strange Fruit? 
Uh, I don't know if that's in there. I know we've suggested that Strange Fruit was, of course, you know, that uh, that was really, a, uh, at the time, it was really an earth-shaking piece of music when it came out. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't know if that's in there or not. I mean, I saw it come up on the list. Words, lists are going back and forth to Japan, so it may be. I know I saw Good Morning Heartache. I saw, um, uh, I can't remember what else I saw in there. Not Violets for Your First, but some, one, of, one of the other ones in there that um, that Billy recorded. We're all suggesting tunes now. Uh, uh, Some other spring, I know, was in there. Do you? But this will be work. This this will be done in November here. And do you have a name for that album? Not yet. I don't know. I mean, we probably uh, will pick it at at the record date. We'll come up with suggestions for it. Pat, where do you usually the promote? Go ahead. Go ahead. Usually the promoter does that, Lewis. I think the promoter does it, but we do suggest. Is that always the case? Let's say if it was a, a Miles Davis, would he choose his own title for an album? Uh, yeah, a lot of times he would. But you look at this new Coltrane record that just came out and it's making a lot of uh, waves. Train never really named most of those tunes. Usually Bob Thiel, the producer, would add an, add the title of it. And that happened with a lot of them. Like Lester, uh, Norman Granz used to rename tunes all the time, change the titles the way he wanted. He said, I like the, this title. He would just put his own title on it. Musicians didn't care, but uh, uh, Coltrane left a lot of that stuff open to the producer to do. do you, what's the name of that that uh, brand new album of, of unreleased music by Coltrane? It's called Both Directions uh, at the Same Time, I believe. I've got it here on my phone. I think it's called Both, uh, Both Directions at Once, I believe it's called. Now, there's a case where this music... That Coltrane record is now on the pop charts, believe it or not. Whoa. Yeah. yeah, it made the pop charts because there's been so much hype around it. You've seen all the hype. First of all, they held the thing back. They only released it on a certain day. Nobody had, could hear everything, anything except one track, which they released on YouTube. And then they started promoting, you know, just promoting and promoting everywhere you turn this culture. And then on, every time I turn on Facebook, somebody had this, it's coming out, it's coming out this weekend, I got to get a copy. And then what they did, which was really smart, because I two days ago, they put it on vinyl. So I just got the, it's a double vinyl set. So that means the 500 gram really virgin vinyl pressing of it is out there. And there's a lot of vinyl freaks now who, who buy these things because they want the, the, the sound of the, uh, you know, the original recording on vinyl. Hmm. And that's a, that's a smart production move. Now you see all the rock bands are doing that. You know, it used to be, you'd go on, you see these talk shows at night, there'd be a musical act and Johnny Carr, or it wouldn't be Johnny Carr, it would be Jay Leno, would hold up a little CD. But then they realized, you know, if you hold up an LP cover, it's going to be bigger. So a lot of these rock bands are pushing and pressing some of their things, not only on CD, but on vinyl. And the vinyl is outselling the CD. Wow. Because CDs are kind of passe now. Everybody downloads it as an MP3 or what have you. But the vinyl is coming back. That's great, yeah. Where do you see yourself in five years? I'm hoping that it's... It's still performing. I'm I'm hoping that I'm probably I will probably not be teaching anymore. I may be doing some summer clinics or workshops here and there, but I'm I'm trying to I'm kind of re- pulling myself back from the teaching. I've done it for so many years now. I think it's time for younger guys to get involved and do it and let me step away. And I want to just do some performing, playing, and writing, and that's about it. And take pick and choose what I where I go and what I want to play. You know, I'll be. T- of course, I'm taking my pensions now. I'm 74, like you are, so I have to take every every pension that I have. So, 
to be working and taking pensions, you know what that does with your income tax. It puts you in a bracket where you're almost working against yourself <laughs> because all that money, all that money that you give back to the government, you say, hey, wait a minute, if I had time to just play and write, I could use that time and pay myself. So it's, that's kind of what the thinking is right now. <laughs> Pat, if you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing in the world, what would it be? Oh boy, there's <laughs> so much going on today. I don't know. I would just, I just wish people were a little more sensitive to each other's feelings. You know, there's, there's just so much confusion going on. It was never that way when we were coming up, and uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's changed. And I think people have to start listening to each other and find out what what everybody's saying. Don't prejudge is one of the big things I think that uh, what's is going on. Uh, now you know it's we're all split along party lines now it's just so it's crazy i agree uh not judging others practicing that is a big one it would definitely yeah um, i mean and listening i mean i i i have facebook friends who uh, who basically are support a different political view than i do and I see everybody that, that they're saying, well, I'm dumping this guy because he has this view. I, I don't dump them because I want to see what the, the other side is saying. I don't engage in conversation. I never talk anything in politics. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole on, on Facebook. Uh, I, but I, I don't want to, to just totally cut people out because then you're just basically isolating yourself. You, you got to be able to have a dialogue with people and find out where they're coming from, their political views. You try to change somebody's political view, but it's very difficult. You know, once somebody's ensconced and entrenched in their belief, it's pretty hard to move them. Now, and I, yeah, it's it's a losing game trying to change people's minds. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely, so you, yeah, it is. absolutely. Embracing uh, the differences is harder, but it's it's definitely more um, enriching. Yeah, I mean, if I may, if I can wave a magic wand, I just, just ask for more tolerance. Basically, people have more tolerance and, and listen. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite book, Pat? Oh God, I'm, I mean, I've been writing. I've been reading books. I read all the time. I'll, I constantly have two or three books working right now. I'm it's biographies, autobiographies. I'm reading a Stan Getz biography. I thought I'd read um, a lot of the great. Uh, um, Yoga books. I have so many books on yoga. I mean, I I have many different uh, you know aspects of what I what I'm interested in. I don't to have a favorite. I don't think I do. I mean, I've always loved. I, I have all. I love Mark Twain. I love reading Robert Frost. Uh, uh, I have a lot of poetry books that I read. I've always been uh, you know a fan of poetry. When uh, from when I was in high school, and I had a, a, a English teacher who got me into it. And of course, it, when we were in school, probably you're the same way. We used to have to stand up in front of the class and recite poems, right? So we'd have to recite. You know, stopping by woods on a snowy evening or the raven or, you know, Ode to a Grecian Urn. We used to have to stand up and recite this dialogue. Well, for you, that probably helped you with your acting because you had to memorize scripts in a hurry. For me, it helped me with lyrics of songs and memorizing chord changes. It was a great lesson. But nobody does that anymore. I talk to kids now. They say, no, we don't. We don't stand up and recite it. We don't have to memorize anything. No, um, well, poetry is music, and uh, uh, I mean, I am I'm an English major, so yeah, I, I certainly was uh, influenced by that and drawn to that. Um, what's the name of the book on Stan Getz? 
God, I don't even know. Uh, I'm sitting in my bathroom now because that's where I was doing the reading last morning. See, what happened was we had a whole bunch of books dumped in our uh, office of school. At school, somebody set a whole bunch of books down. I saw the Stan Getz biography, and I said, I thought I I read this one. I said, but let me take it, see if it's because it was in paperback. So I took it home and realized I hadn't read it. I thought it was the Lewis Porter book. That was on Stan Getz, but it wasn't. I don't even know the author, but it's, it's the most informative one I've ever seen on Stan. Um, I'd have to figure out what it is. I, it's, I can't remember the title of it. It's okay. Do you have a favorite quote? Oh, I don't know. I mean, one that I used uh, from the, I mean, ever since the 70s when I was really into uh, auto-suggestion, self-hypnosis and all of those, uh, I guess it's pronounced Kuei, but Miyoku uh, or Kuei, you know, his famous thing that I always recited all the time, I used to have it pasted up on the mirror. You know, that one every day in every way I'm getting better and better. That was one of my kind of mottos that I used to have. I used to have it pasted on the mirror. So I get up in the morning and I read that. It's, you know, the power of suggestion. I studied hypnosis when I was younger on the road with Buddy's band. I studied with a hypnotherapist and I worked on all of that auto-suggestion stuff. So that, you know, mind... Uh, relaxation, those things were kind of things that piqued my interest. And when we, I was on Buddy Rich's band, I had a, uh, one of the managers used to manage uh, a, a hip, hypnotherapist and a, hypno, uh, you know, a stage hypnotist. And so he got me into uh, studying it. So Emil Coy, that, that, that was one of his famous uh, little quotations. I, I think that's one that uh, sticks with me. What was the man's name who uh, said that? Because uh, if it's C O U E with the grab would pronounce Kue, I guess Emil. It's okay. one of his, it's his famous. It was basically the power. It's one of those power of positive thinking things. But uh, well, it's fascinating. To, it's fascinating to know that you um, uh, basically are attracted to affirmations because I mean that's part of my passion too. Uh, here's a great one that I picked up from a, a course that I took. I am the eye of the storm. I stay calm and centered regardless of anything. That's a great one. Yeah, it I is. Like that. That is. It is. It is. I mean, you know, when you're getting frustrated or, you know, you're getting tense, mm -hmm. or maybe overwhelmed, stop, take a breath and just focus on that thought. Say it a few times and it'll change your energy completely. Yeah, because it real you realize that only you can change anything around you. Don't let outside influences become the, you know, the 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 strength of you know where you're going to take it. Let let yourself remain calm. I like that. That's when you got to remember that. Uh, what you just said is the essence of my show. Change your story, change your life. How can oh, people? Oh yeah, right. Of yeah, man. How can people? Where can they go online to hear your stuff to to become more familiar with what you do? Well, I mean, all my stuff is on YouTube. Now, I just found somebody had done a really nice, um, um, let me just see here if I can find it. Somebody, uh, uh, Leo Sullivan, who's a really good friend of mine, has just done a, a nice profile on me where you have all video clips of me. I don't know if I sent that to you or not, but it's called uh, jazzgiants.net. Okay. And if you go on there and put my name in there, he has a whole kind of, a, it's almost like a Facebook page. He's got a lot of pictures. And then you go on and you have my biography, my discography, articles. You have video, audio, and links. So it's a, it's a whole thing. And if you go on here, there's he's got videos of me with Buddy Rich. He's 
got me playing with Bernie Sinensky here. I see all these. Here I'm playing with Don Thompson and Terry Clark and Bill King. And here I am in Chicago. So it's it's called JazzGiants.net, and he has a nice profile on me. I just discovered this like last week. Beautiful. And uh, for my storytellers, it's Pat LaBarbera, L-A-B-A-R-B-E-R-A. Yes. Uh, Although it, in huh? Sicily it would be La Barbera, right? La Barbera. <laughs> in Italian. But, you know, it, be, it became westernized through years of you know, li, li, living in an area where people changed the name or the, the pronunciation. You know, they came through Ellis Island. But they oh, could change your name. Which, so is, I mean, it, it's, which is appropriate because you live now in the city of Mandra Cakes. <laughs> in Toronto. <laughs> Medigan. 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 <laughs> Any final thoughts that you would like to no, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to figure this. I mean, I just hope that people can still get out there and go to clubs and hear people perform. And I mean, we're, we're lucky that we still have places in Toronto that are, you know, maintaining a jazz policy, the jazz bistro, the pilot has the Saturday things. There's a few other clubs, the Rex, of course, with their jazz policy. And I hope that people still go out and hear the live music. It's getting harder and harder because there's so many distractions out there now. So many different things on TV. You have your phones, you know, and people, you know, they just don't go out that often. I'd love to see people supporting live music as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Pat, this has been a, an honor and a pleasure, and uh, thank you so much for spending time with me today. And thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and a true great jazz artist, a great musician, period, Mr. Pat LaBarbera. Whether you like jazz or not, I encourage you to go onto YouTube and listen to a little bit of, or a lot, of Pat's music. The name is La Barbara, L-A-B-A-R-B-E-R-A. And if you know jazz and you hear him playing some Coltrane, close your eyes. He's channeling one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time. Definitely pay this show forward. Let people know that they can hear it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website, changeyourstorypodcast.com. And of course, at the website, grab the copy of the ebook that I created for you, Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. And... I don't know if you like biographies, but they're certainly inspiring to read. And if you love music, and definitely if you love jazz, look up the book that Pat spoke about, The Life of Stan Getz. I believe there's really one um, one seminal work about him. It's called Stan Getz, A Life in Jazz. Look it up on Google, look it up in Amazon, and certainly look it up at Audible, where you can download that book, if it's available, and it probably is, or any other book, absolutely free, 
and choose from more than 180,000 titles. Just go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. It was truly an honor and a pleasure to speak to Pat today. It's always been a great pleasure to listen to his music, and I've been listening to it for years. And there were many interesting things that I learned from listening to him talk about his life. Notice the humility in the man, and the matter-of-fact way that he spoke about how he developed a life and walked among some of the greatest celebrities in the world. One of the things that I would like you to think about, particularly for next week, is this. Remember that Pat tried to walk away from jazz. He tried to do a quote-unquote normal job. But that wasn't his fate. It wasn't his calling. And gratefully, luckily for all of us, he turned back to his calling and developed a career in music, which is exactly where he belongs. Many of us have things inside of us that we were once passionate about. Perhaps we dreamed about those things when we were young kids, but we buried those dreams because we think that life demands that we do something more practical. And I'm urging you to consider the subversive thought that that feeling that we must do something else is just a story. If you still have longings, you still have promptings from something that you wanted when you were younger, and it's that means it's still inside you, have the courage to reawaken it. Have the courage to embrace it and perhaps to make it change the entire direction of your life, no matter what age you are today. To help you do that, begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.